Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is a recording of our monthly contemplative service. It has been lightly edited so you can participate wherever you're listening. Our contemplative service is a gathering wrapped around spiritual practice. Each month, we look at the writings and teachings of a different saint, mystic, or spiritual teacher within our Christian tradition. We hear a bit of their life story, and then we sit with some of their writings using a variety of spiritual practices. We encourage you to practice with us as you're listening, and may you connect a little deeper with the heart of God along with us. Hello, it's Caro here. Our recording of our contemplative service on Sunday didn't work. Um, There was a cord that wasn't plugged in. And so we don't have what we did to upload to the podcast. But instead, Luke and I thought we'd still create something for those who couldn't make it on Sunday so that you can still dive into some of the richness of Simone Bay. And so what you'll have in the next little while is something similar, but also something a little bit different than what we did on Sunday. Of course, when you create something just for a podcast, you get the opportunity to think a little bit more creatively about how people might be listening to it when they're at home. And so wherever you find yourself now, whether you're doing housework or going for a walk or driving in the car, I hope that something from this following contemplative gift um, really speaks to you. One of the quotes of Simone Weil that really anchored our service on Sunday was this, absolute unmixed attention is prayer. Let me say that again. Absolute unmixed attention is prayer. And much of what Simone Weil writes about when she speaks of the contemplative posture is around attention and we'll look at that in a little bit more depth later on but just for now right here at the beginning I wonder if it might help if you could just pay attention for a moment to where you are and to what's going on around you so that as you're listening you might actually hold a posture of attention. And so how about we do this simple grounding exercise? What are four things that you can see around you right now? You might like to just look around and name them. Four things that you can see. What are three things that you can hear? What are two things that you can feel? And what's one thing 
that you can smell. Just being present to where you are. Being truly where you are in this moment. I'm going to start sharing a little bit about the life of Simone Bay so that you get a bit of a feel for who she was. Um, like any of the saints or the mystics or the spiritual writers that we're looking at in our contemplative service, so much of who these people are actually informs their understanding of who God is and how the world works. And that's really the same for all of us and gives a dignity, I think, to our own selves and our experiences as a way in which we access and understand God. So Simone Weil, um, essentially she's a philosopher and a mystic and a political activist. Um, a lot of her writing really is um, deeply philosophical and it's um, <laughs> because it's like that, it is deep and, in my opinion, um, challenging to understand. I don't exactly have like a philosophical brain. Like I feel like I am much more pragmatic as a person. And so sometimes when I'm reading philosophers, I just find it really hard to get into. So Simone can be a little bit, at least for me, inaccessible. I'll own that. But I have come to really appreciate so much of her writing, sometimes through listening to other people speak about her and at other times just reflecting and pondering on different quotes that Simone wrote. So Simone was born in France on February 3rd, 1909, and she was born to upper, in an upper-class um, French family. Her father was a doctor, and her brother would go on to become one of the greatest mathematicians of his generation. So her family was highly intelligent and intelligence was really valued in Simone's family. And she often felt anxious about her inferiority compared to her brother and her father. But as would become clear as her life unfolded, her intelligence and her talents really lay in different directions. She was phenomenal at languages and became a great philosopher. Um, a funny little story about her upbringing with her brother is that when Simone was 10 and her brother was 12, they would take it in turns to recite um, the ancient Greek, um, like Homer's um, Odyssey and the Iliad in, in ancient Greek. And they'd, they'd memorized it and learnt ancient Greek. And if any one of them got any part of that wrong, they could pull each other's hair and they weren't allowed to make a noise. And so she, from a very young age, show, showed a real um, adeptness at languages. She grew up um, in a secular Jewish family and her upbringing was essentially religionless. She studied at some of the best uh, French elite schools and was one of the first women to graduate with what would what would be like a PhD equivalent in philosophy. Um, she was really active in leftist causes, kind of like trade union movement. Um, she was a very passionate, passionate woman, 
very intimidating. We, there's little stories of people who met Simone and was um, completely intimidated by her. She developed in the, her university days um, two nicknames. One was the Red Virgin and the other was the categorical imperative in skirts. <laughs> so she was an intense kind of person. And you see this as you read parts of her life where, you know, there's little stories of her being awake for days and days and chain smoking and just writing and digging deep into what this, you know, this conundrum or this understanding that she was trying to wrestle through. So she was, um, yeah, very intense, very complex, likely um, neurodiverse. Actually, when you read a bit about Simone's life, you realize that she probably was on some level neurodiverse. And this just added to who she was and her gift to the world, the way she could see things, the way she could focus intently upon something and wrestle it out. Um, she was she was such an interesting character. She was, while she was obviously wrote a lot um, of social and political discourse and um, was trained in philosophy and wrote different essays on particular things, she wasn't content just to philosophize from a distance. Simone had um, a real commitment to um, having firsthand um, experience with what she was talking about. One um, of her quotes that um, kind of speaks to this is she said, you cannot speak truth unless it comes through your flesh. And so whatever she was writing about, she also sought to experience. And this led her to do all kinds of crazy things. She was a, a trained teacher, but she gave up teaching to work in a factory for 12 months doing dangerous and menial labor so that she could be amongst the workers and test out her theories on social and economic and political you know, justice. She went and fought in the Spanish Civil War and only just managed to escape um, being killed in a skirmish by a few days before that, accidentally stepping in a, a pot of hot cooking oil and having to go home and recover. Um, so she, she was wildly clumsy, um, completely impractical and brilliantly um, intelligent. And she was... Yeah, just a real a real gift to the world. Um, she, despite being yeah having a completely religionless upbringing, um, in her mid to late twenties, she had these what she called three contacts with Christianity that began to open her up to God. In the first um, the first one, she was down in Portugal with her parents, and she was recovering after a really intense time of working in factories and she'd had to leave the factory work because she was suffering from intense migraines on a regular basis. And she'd gone down to Portugal to recover. And while she was staying there in a little village on the coast, she saw the local villagers in a procession um, honouring their patron saint. And she watched them carrying candles and singing ancient hymns of heart-rending sadness while a full moon rose above the sea. And Simone felt a deep affinity with these villages. She had this revelation in that moment that Christianity is the religion of slaves, that it's the religion of the poor 
and the marginalised and the afflicted. And she felt herself afflicted like them, afflicted with periods of intense migraines and great pain that really just reduced her to coping. The second contact or encounter happened while she was in Assisi in 1937, where she writes that she was compelled for the first time in her life to go down on her knees. And then the third encounter happened in 1938. Simone and her mum were attending Holy Week services in a monastery in France known for a distinctive form of Gregorian chanting. And they were visiting primarily just for an enjoyment of the music, um, not out of any kind of spiritual desire. But during the week that she spent there, Simone met a young Catholic man who introduced her to the poetry of George Herbert, the English poet. And she quickly memorised Herbert's poem, Love Bade Me Welcome. And she was reciting it to herself during one of her bad headaches. And in her own words, she writes, it was during one of these recitations that Christ himself came down and took possession of me. At another time, she writes of a profound contemplative experience that she had where she felt God took her aside and spent days with her, eating bread and drinking wine. And these encounters with Christ, with the love of God, deeply and profoundly changed Simone. It opened her up to this world of faith and to this wrestle with God and to deep um, contemplative consideration of the Jesus way. While faith was not an intellectual position for Simone, it clearly had profound intellectual consequences. Um, she was a highly intelligent and logical and rational person, um, but she makes it clear in her writing that she did not reason herself into faith, but she felt a distinct and a yeah a, a definite presence of love in the midst of her own suffering and that that changed her and rather than her faith um, changing her intellectual position on different matters it actually deepened them and provided new dimensions for her to explore and she came to know that even in the midst of soul-destroying affliction that God could be present from her conversion onwards, um, she produced um, a lot of writing on spiritual matters. Two of her books in particular that are perhaps most well known is one, the first book is called Gravity and Grace, where she speaks about, I guess, a cosmology of the universe where there is grace, which is the utter goodness and kindness and um, mercy of God and gravity, which is simply those natural causes that can be both good and do us harm. And she talks about the interaction, I guess, of gravity and grace. And I guess it's an exploration of where God is in the midst of suffering. How do we reconcile a good God with the reality of a universe that is dangerous, that where harm happens, where abuse happens, where death happens. And of course, she's writing 
post-World War I, the Great War, where a generation of young men were wiped out. And she's writing these things as with the rise of Hitler and Nazism and as Germany is invading Europe. And so for her, these wrestles with where is God in the midst of suffering, how do gravity and grace relate to one another? They were not just theory, but they were being lived out in reality, in both her own life, in her own suffering, and as she saw the suffering of the world around her. The other book that she is most known for is called Waiting on God. And it's in that book where she outlines her ideas about the contemplative posture and attention and how to be attentive to God in the midst of all things. There is no doubt that Simone Weil was eccentric and extreme, incredibly intelligent, hopelessly impractical, someone who had a profound encounter with God and was forever changed while still being absolutely herself. She had escaped France in the Nazi occupation um, during World War II and left with her parents to go to New York and then from there she went on to London and was hoping to get back to France to be in solidarity with her people. But while she was in England she collapsed in early 1943 and um, it was discovered that she was suffering from tuberculosis that had been exacerbated by overwork. At that time, you know, it was possible to recover from TB and the um, you were told to rest and to eat a really healthy diet. There was no penicillin, but it was still possible to, to recover. But despite the medical order to eat abundantly, Simone refused to eat more than what she thought the people in occupied France were getting in daily rations. Um, that's her commitment to her beliefs. And as a result, her condition worsened and she died of heart failure on August 23, 1943. And we lost what was perhaps one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, wrestling with faith. It's hard to say how much of Simone's thinking may have changed as she would have aged. And like all of us, it's easy to be extreme in our 20s and our 30s, but time kind of like buffers all of us out as we we come to know the wisdom of God through our life stages. But still, Simone was an incredible, incredible person. She was probably one of the greatest spiritual mystical writers of the 20th century. For her, just as the truth about factory work and life could only be gained by contact, so also the truth of life and God could only be gained by contact. One can't stand at a safe distance and decide what to believe and what will be good. We have to be willing to be transformed by the truth of what we encounter without seeking to control God or our own faith. Despite her profound intelligence, she knew God could not be known via intelligence, but only by our inner knowing, a contemplative mind and that any encounter with God could not be earned or orchestrated. We can only wait and receive it as grace. One final quirk of Simone's is that despite her profound spiritual awakening and conversion to faith, she refused to be baptised and join the Catholic Church. 
She gives a few reasons for this. One was that she actually felt it was an act of obedience. She really felt like God did not want her in the church. And obedience to God was at the heart of things for Simone. She wrote at one time that even if her own salvation were lying on a table, she would not pick it up unless God commanded her to. The other reason for refusing baptism was that she felt it would betray those outside the church, those who weren't welcome in the church, as well as those people from whom she had gained so much wisdom and insight, the ancient Greeks and writers from other spiritual traditions. She would rather be outside with the outsiders than inside with the saved. So Simone holds for us an immense amount of wisdom, if we can access it, an incredible mind, a deep thinker, a contemplative mystic. And as we go on from now, we just want to share a snippet of her thinking with you, that something in it might resonate and be a gift to you today. We're going to read out a selection of Simone Weil's writings that have been uh, collected together. The invitation here, I think, is to find some space to sit and really let her way of thinking about God and about the world sink in. Uh, And I've found that it's often been through a bit of repetition of hearing some of her thoughts that they've started to sink a bit deeper into my soul. And so... I invite you to to do that with with this space now. Human beings are so made that the ones who do the crushing feel nothing. It is the person crushed who feels what is happening. Unless one has placed oneself on the side of the oppressed to feel with them, one cannot understand. Just as the power of the sun is the only force in the natural universe that causes a plant to grow against gravity, so the grace of God is the only force in the spiritual universe that causes a person to grow against the gravity of their own ego. Every being cries out in silence to be read differently. Do not be indifferent to these cries. I also am other than what I imagine myself to be. To know this is forgiveness. In relation to God, we are a thief who has burgled the house of a kindly householder and been allowed to keep some gold. From the point of view of the lawful owner, this gold is a gift. From the point of view of the burglar, it is a theft. He must go and give it back. 
We have stolen a little of God's being to make it ours. God has made a gift of it, but we have stolen it. We must return it. Sin is not a distance. It is a turning of our gaze in the wrong direction. All sins are attempts to fill voids. Imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring. Imaginary good is boring. Real good is always new, marvellous, intoxicating. Every sin is an attempt to fly from emptiness. We have to try to cure our faults by attention and not by will. We cannot take a step toward the heavens. God crosses the universe and comes to us. God is rich in mercy. I know this wealth of his with the certainty of experience. I have touched it. The essential thing to know about God is that God is good. All the rest is secondary. It is only the impossible that is possible for God. He has given over the possible to the mechanics of matter and the autonomy of his creatures. The virtue of hope is an orientation of the soul towards a transformation after which it will be wholly and exclusively love. God's love for us is not the reason for which we should love him. God's love for us is the reason for us to love ourselves. Love, to feel with one's whole self the existence of another being. Love of God is pure when joy and suffering inspire an equal degree of gratitude. It is only necessary to know that love is a direction and not a state of the soul. If one is unaware of this, one falls to despair at the first onslaught of affliction. 
absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. Prayer consists simply in giving to God all the careful attention of which the soul is capable. Two prisoners whose cells adjoin communicate with each other by knocking on the wall. The wall is the thing which separates them, but is also their means of communication. It is the same with us and God. Every separation is a link. Expectant waiting is the foundation of the spiritual life. There is an easiness in salvation, which is more difficult to us than all our efforts. The mysteries of faith are degraded if they are made into an object of affirmation and negation, when in reality they should be an object of contemplation. The extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. God created through love and for love. God did not create anything except love itself and the means to love. He created love in all its forms. He created beings capable of love from all possible distances. Because no other could do it, he himself went to the greatest possible distance, the infinite distance. This infinite distance between God and God, this supreme tearing apart, this incomparable agony, this marvel of love is the crucifixion. Nothing can be further from God than that which has been made accursed. The Trinity and the Cross are the two poles of Christianity, the two essential truths. The first, perfect joy. The second, perfect affliction. It is necessary to know both the one and the other and their mysterious unity. But the human condition in this world places us infinitely far from the Trinity, at the very foot of the cross. Our country is the cross. The beauty of this world is Christ's tender smile coming to us through matter.
Fortunately, the sky is beautiful everywhere. The sea is not less beautiful in our eyes because we know that sometimes ships are wrecked by it. Beauty captivates the flesh in order to obtain permission to pass right to the soul. There is no greater joy for me than looking at the sky on a clear night with an attention so concentrated that all my other thoughts disappear. Then one can think that the stars enter into one's soul. Creation is an act of love and it is perpetual.